Hello and welcome to Now That's an Idea, the podcast focusing on moving forward by embracing the past and living out strong values to cultivate the future. I'm John here at Northwood University. Thank you so much for joining us for podcast episode number three. Today we are talking about the future of freedom and free enterprise. Here at Northwood University, we have the Northwood Idea, and part of the Northwood Idea is free enterprise, which incorporates the elements of freedom into it as well. It's a very interesting topic, and we're very excited to have two great guests for our podcast. Of course, we have our main host, Dr. Dale Matchek. He's a professor and chair of economics here at Northwood University. And we're also joined by Nick Gillespie. Nick Gillespie is editor-at-large at at the award-winning Reason magazine, and he's also served as editor-in-chief of the magazine, as well as on Reason.com and Reason TV, and also has a podcast series, which we'd encourage all of you to check out wherever you listen to podcasts. His essays have also appeared in a host of top publications, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. He has also been a frequent contributor to NPR, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, Fox Business, and PBS, just to name a few. He's an author and a producer of award-winning books and documentaries. He's a great guest. We're excited to have him and Dale together. Let's hop right into the interview. Well, welcome, Nick, to Northwood University. It's been a pleasure having you here this weekend. The debate tonight you had with Ramesh was very informative. Great. There are a lot of topics uh, we could cover tonight. But uh, what I'd like to talk to you about, if I could, is something that's, I think, near and dear to the hearts of our alumni, and it's important to our mission here, and that is the future of freedom Hmm. in the United States. And as a longtime observer of developments and a longtime influencer, you're trying to defend freedom. Hmm. You've been been at it for a long time. Have you seen progress? Are are things looking up? Uh, Where where do we stand? Uh, You know, that's a a really great question. And I'm thinking, I, I started at Reason in October of 93. So yeah, this is 26 years, something like that, coming up on 27. And One of the things that was interesting to me, I remember towards the end of the 90s, the Wall Street Journal, PBS, everybody was saying, you know what, with the collapse of communism, that, you know, the battle for free markets had basically been won, that people understood that free markets uh, or, you know, free enterprise, the free enterprise system basically did a really good job of delivering the goods and kind of spreading it around pretty well because everybody was getting richer, everybody was getting better. I was also excited because I thought in the 90s, due to technological innovation and a variety of other things, including the kind of breakdown of gatekeeping institutions, cultural gatekeepers, whether they were churches or art critics or whatever, um, the internet and other things had made it easier, uh, cheaper to produce and consume whatever culture you wanted, to express yourself however you wanted in just new ways. And I wrote a lot about how the cultural sphere had been deregulated, like the economic sphere had been deregulated. And I still think that's true. And in many ways, I think we live in the best world that I've lived in yet. Uh, You know, I was born in 1963. I think we're freer than ever. But I'm also, I feel like everything is imperiled. And when we talk about economic freedom, uh, you know, the, the way that government operates now, you know, there's more government debt than ever. And that is a problem. There are more regulations. And that's a problem, even if we have cooler stuff and can work around a lot of that stuff. Um, culturally, we're right now in this moment, and this is from the right and the left, and it bothers me, there's a really strong interest in regulating the internet, regulating tech companies, the so-called tech giants, Apple, Amazon, Google, Twitter, uh, you know, and changing the laws to kind of restrict the ability of us to express ourselves as fully as we are. So in a, in a way, it's things are great and also things are really imperiled. 
and it and it bothers me because we're starting to see a convergence on the right and the left. And so you have people like Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who have nothing else in common saying, yeah, you know, Google is a problem. Uh, Apple is a problem. Amazon is a problem. That I think that should give us all pause. So big tech, and that's that's one threat that you see on the horizon. Are there any others that we should be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I you know, <clears throat> I, I think I'm, I'm a big believer in the idea that there's a, a number of economists, you know, both on who are kind of like Marxist economists, and they exist, and free market people who say running massive unchecked deficits and building up massive national debt is problematic for many reasons, but the biggest one is that it suppresses long-term economic growth. And when you look in the 21st century, we have had two things happen. You know, and, and I mean, there's a lot of reasons to explain it, but part of it is that we have had massive deficit spending, which stopped, you know, it never stopped. We have entitlements that are gobbling up more and more part of the, the, um, uh, of the federal budget. And we have lower than average economic growth. And I think these things are related. And I think if we do not you know, fully shift into a 21st century model of living in the world, including governance, and if we think that we can take a kind of Bismarckian welfare state and just keep growing, we're going to give more and more people you know, Social Security and Medicare for all and free college for all and all and all and everything is universal. People are living longer and we're spending more. We can't tax more like we never seem to raise enough revenue. We're going to have, you know, it's going to be a problem. And I think that to me is is kind of frightening. You know, the 2008 financial crisis was problematic. The next one's going to be really big because if and when it happens, like we don't even have, you know, the kind of government tools that we had then. Oh, right. well, we'll increase spending or we'll reduce interest rates. Negative interest it's like rates. We're already, we're broke and we have negative interest rates. So, you know, what do you do next? That's yeah. worrisome. Well, I wonder, from my perspective, it seems like that period you were talking about, that period of optimism, uh, that was a period where a politician's they, they worked across the aisle. We did have a period of budget surpluses in the late 1990s. Yeah. Uh, to some extent, we lucked into that, but that was also the part of some yeah. real good work, I yeah, think. Yeah, no, and, it, you know, part, and a big part, which uh, Republicans and Democrats both never really want to revisit it, but a big part of it was what I, and I think it was H.W. Bush who started calling it the peace dividend, but at the end of the Cold War, we stopped spending as much money on, on military defense because we didn't, you know, it was plain that we didn't need it. And that's been building up again, you know, in the wake of 9-11. This is something where Donald Trump is bizarre. On the one hand, he is not an interventionist in the way that I think Hillary Clinton would have been. He does not have a unified field theory of foreign policy, and he doesn't want the, the, the U.S. to be the world's cop, and he doesn't want to engage in regime change, but he does want to increase defense spending all of the time, et cetera. But there was that moment where I, I you know, uh, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, who was kind of vanished from contemporary discourse, but he was Clinton's dark twin, and they, they kind of locked, you know, they were like Sherlock Holmes and Professor Moriarty almost, like, locked in an embrace going over Reichenbach Falls. And it worked. It froze government spending. And, and, and you know, and when you look at just per capita and in inflation terms, went down. They increased uh, tax revenue by cutting capital gains tax, and, and especially Clinton, towards the Clinton um, called himself a new Democrat. Yeah. Oh, and I said the era of big government yeah. is over. Yeah. And we need to take that seriously again. You know, and George W. Bush ran... 
you know, he was going to have a humble foreign policy and he was oh, yeah. a compassionate conservative. He wanted small, limited government that was effective to help parts of the population that needed it. He was a massive big spender, both on defense stuff and just ruinous in terms of foreign policy, in my experience, in my uh, sense of things. But then also domestically, he increased massively. I mean, he, you know, he passed the Medicare prescription drug plan. He did no child uh, left behind. I mean, he blew out the budget on the domestic side and we haven't looked back. And this is where I think one of the a 21st century governance model that I think libertarians could get behind, but I think everybody else could, is simply that the government can't do everything. It can't be all things to all people, and it should do fewer things, but it should do them effectively. And we need to start reeling in the government. And, and this is what bothers me, is that, you know, we have all of the Democrats saying Medicare for all, free college for all, you know, this for all. Everything is free, and it's universal. And then you have people like Trump and the Republicans who are now saying, oh, okay, well, here's a paid family leave act. Like nobody is interested in reducing the size, scope, and spending of government. Yeah. And I think that's going to, you know, that's going to come a crop. So let's suppose you've got these uh, libertarian sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Can the Republicans take libertarian support for granted? Can the Democrats hope to pick up some support from libertarians? Is yeah. there a legitimate uh, hope for uh, a third party that could change things I up? have lately become... Uh, you know, I, I don't even use libertarian as a noun anymore. I, I think of it as a, an adjectival descriptor, that it's it's pre-political, certainly pre-partisan, and you could be a libertarian Republican or a libertarian Democrat or a libertarian libertarian, a capital L libertarian. And the idea is simply that your default setting or your assumption is that everybody should have more autonomy in their own lives to make choices that matter. And one of the implications for that for government policy is that there should be less government and all transfer programs should be basically in the form of unrestricted uh, cash grants. So that, you know, if you're giving money to people, instead of saying, oh, we're going to give you food stamps and you can spend it on, you know, uh, skim milk, but not whole milk because that's unhealthy or whatever. Like, just give people money yeah. uh, and not a universal basic income, but just give them money for education, you know, and then they can spend it on their kids' education or on their housing or the whatever to help poor people. To get to your larger point, the Republican Party has taken libertarians for granted, and they're starting to peel off. I mean, the, the, you know, when's the last time a Republican, you know, candidate for president actually won a majority of the vote? And you have to go back to the second term of George W. Bush, you know, and then before him, his father uh, won in 1988. You know, but I mean, it's like Republicans are not popular, you know, at the highest level of office. Democrats on a certain level can make claim on some social issues related types of things, but they're terrible on education policy. They're ter generally terrible on foreign policy. Obama was terrible and uh, Bill Clinton was terrible on that. And they're not particularly good on free expression or anything like that. And so... I would like to see a kind of general libertarian spirit infuse all of politics. And what that means is, you know, so how it shakes out among parties, I don't really care. But the idea that we are reaching, we're recognizing we're reaching the limit of government to grow and keep spending without having to pay that bill and what we want and what, you know, people understand we are capable of making a lot of decisions for ourselves. We're going to do this pretty well. Let's have a government that's smaller and policies that allow us to kind of do that. And it costs less. <laughs> well, some of the criticism of that is going to be that uh, people are not that good at making decisions. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and 
because they don't make the choice I would make. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. But, you know, we're also all kind of busy and like, you know, you know what what you want is I think everybody wants a society where everybody has a pretty good shot at kind of maximizing who they are. Yeah. And that the way you do that is not by giving, you know, Medicare to billionaires right. and giving free college to the children of people who are making a couple hundred grand a year or anything like that. It's that you have most people choose what they spend their money on and you have a freer economy that has more mobility, more movement and more innovation. And then you help people who really need help. You top them off with money. You top them off with kind of support services that help them. Mm-hmm. Let's just take Social Security mm-hmm. as an example. Uh, both parties are strongly in support of it. Right. Nobody's talked about privatizing it in a long time. Right. Uh, you know how, but it is a time bomb. Uh, Medicare is another one. Mm-hmm. So how do you get people to take a more grown-up position with respect? To those two programs. Yeah, I th- unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is when there's, you know, when, when crunch time comes, whether it's 2030 or 2032 or 2033, and the way Social Security is set up, it's once they've exhausted any kind of surplus, they can only spend what they take in in a given year. And that means depending on, you know, a variety of assumptions, anywhere from like about a 20 to 35 percent cut off the top of benefits, when that happens, there'll be a reckoning about that. And yeah. I think... You know, one of the things that we should be, you know, kind of building back towards is the idea that people who can afford to pay for their health care, for their education, for their retirements should do so. And that means, you know, this stuff has to stop being a universal entitlement that, you know, ends up breaking the bank. And instead, it's targeted assistance for people who are poor. Has there ever been a country that was able to roll back entitlements before? Yeah, you know, actually, this is uh, there. There have been a number of countries that have done this, including Sweden, including Canada, including New Zealand, where at various points in the '90s or in the early aughts, their debt to GDP ratio was getting out of hand, and it was it was screwing with their ability to uh, you know borrow money and things like that. And they right-sized, you know, to a certain degree, their welfare state or their or their their spending, and the economy tends to grow very well under that. So there, and the United States did this after right after World War II. Um, you know, there had been during, you know all of the New Deal spending, and then World War II, there was massive amounts of deficit spending for years, and pretty quickly, Harry Truman after World War II, they cut federal defense spending massively and a bunch of other programs. And that's when the depression really ended. That's when the economy took off and really became a kind of the post-war phenomenon that 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 created a, a wide-ranging middle and upper middle class. So it looks as though uh, we're in a presidential campaign year. I don't know who won in Iowa tonight, but right. it might have been Bernie Sanders. It might not have been, but uh, we got people like that on the left, and then we've got Donald Trump on the right. And neither one of them is a poster child for uh, small L libertarian values. No, yeah, not at all. So how did we get to this point uh, where where these are the yeah. people that we're choosing between? Well, you know, I think it's partly that the way, you know, the parties, uh, the major parties, we always have two major parties, even when there you know, are multiple parties in play. They kind of have a guarantee on, on kind of cash flow and market share. What has been happening over the past 20 or 30 years is that the coalitions that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were composed of have been fading. Uh, you know, these these were uh, special interest groups, collections, you know, in the post-war era that make less and less sense, which helps explain 
why Donald Trump won, you know, with he he legitimately won the election, but he won with, you know, by losing the popular vote. Bernie Sanders is not popular. This is we're at a, in a, a new period of no decision where neither party really can command a lot of, um, you know, the a majority of, of the American people. And there's going to be some kind of settling of that because the Democratic Party, one of the things people have talked about, the Republican Party has fallen apart because of Donald Trump. There's some truth to that. But the Democratic Party right now is going through convulsions because it doesn't make sense anymore. And I think over the next couple of elections, you're going to see different types of coalitions cropping up. Whether or not one of them is able to really win a uh, kind of, uh, not a plurality, but an actual majority of American votes, that remains to be seen. But I think, you know, you're saying it doesn't make sense to be, say, I'm a Republican, I'm for small government, but I want to invade every country in the world, (laughs) and I want to jack up defense spending, and I want, you know, I want to put trade restrictions in. If I'm a Democrat, and I want to spend a lot of money on all sorts of stuff, and I want to kind of be a cronyist, et cetera, like these, nothing, nothing is quite making sense anymore. And we're in the death rattle of, of 20th century politics and exactly what the 21st century coalitions will look like. I don't think it's yet, it's not fully clear yet. Well, you've had a career in the media. And to what extent is media responsible for the kind of divisive political atmosphere we have? To what extent is it a, a matter of technology? Um, you know, one explanation I've heard is, you know, people who read Reason Magazine, they will Google and Google will tell them, here's where you go for your next story. Here's right, where. right. Is, is something like that going, are we becoming uh, more divided? Well, you know, there's there's a uh, political scientist at Stanford named Morris Fiorina who has published widely on this over the past 20 or 25 years. And he actually argues culture war, the idea that there are culture wars or that there are bubbles that people don't intersect with anymore. You know, you I've got my right-wing, left-wing, libertarian, progressive bubble, and I never go outside of that. He says that that's really pretty fundamentally false. And when you look at things like immigration, drug legalization, gay marriage, abortion, there are large and growing majorities that agree on, you know, one way to do things. And, you know, I think that that's largely true. So I think this idea of bubbles is an an ideological self-sealing or what was uh, the fancy term was epistemic closure. I think that's heavily um, exaggerated. What hasn't come happened yet is that we don't have a political expression for those kinds of commonalities because the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have sorted into a conservative and a liberal party. They're much more homogeneous than they used to be. They appeal to fewer people as a reason because it's like you cannot be, you know, you can't be against high to- high marginal tax rates like a Republican pro-choice. And you can't be, you know, a Democrat. You you know, there there are it's it's just weird. Like you have to be a maximal union person and you have you now can't be trolls for yeah, so, yeah, you know, so it's like we, we're still looking for the political expression that will allow us, I think, to kind of proceed in a way that makes more sense. Okay. Well, I certainly thank you for your time tonight, and thank you for your hard work, and uh, <laughs> really uh, look forward to reading more of your, your work as we go forward. I appreciate it. I mean, I think we are, you know, technologically, you know, we're in a great era. It's, it's free. It's easier to be an individual than ever before, and to me, that's a really good thing. Politics is always confounding and horrible, but 
one of the things that I hope people understand is that there's so much more to life beyond politics in our, in our cultural life, in our work life, in our personal lives. And that's where we should be spending more time. And that's what is, to me, is what's frustrating is that in the era of Trump, it, politics has subsumed everything. And it's just not a good place to be living.